Hi everybody, I'm Mike and I'm an alcoholic. Uh, my sobriety date is February the 12th, 1990, and my home group is the Brentwood Full Moon Group in Brentwood, Tennessee. That's just south of Nashville, Tennessee. And we meet on Friday nights at 6.30. It's an open meeting. Uh, we have an open discussion. We also have a beginner's meeting. And we have al down the hall. Uh, our group is coming up on our 30th anniversary in May. And the Al-Anon meeting started not long after the group started, and the meeting has actually moved four times since then, since the original place. And the Al-Anon group has followed the AA group uh, every time. And I've been writing the history of the group uh, lately, and, it, and it, it's dawned on me how much it's meant to the AA group that the Al-Anon group has been there all the time. When I first came in, it enabled Diane and I to go to the same meeting at the same time, and there's Alateen in that in that group as well, and both of our sons uh, went to those Alateen meetings, so we went as a family. And uh, when our when our boys weren't going, Diane and I went back and forth to this meeting for years and years, and we still go on Friday nights now. It used to be Wednesday and Friday, but the location we have now is just Friday night. You know, I was I was reading the uh, the purpose and beliefs the 12 statements. I don't know whether everybody's seen this or not, but I'm, I was really touched by, uh, by the purpose of the, of the roundup here, and then it ties so much between AA and al -9. I know our traditions keep us as separate entities, but I wouldn't be standing up here married to this beautiful woman on the front row uh, for coming up on 39 years if it hadn't been for al -Nine. And uh, It's been such a, a, a wonderful part of our lives. It's, it's given, us, uh, given us both hope and and a direction to uh, live the kind of lives that we want to live. And so I'm, I'm really grateful for that, and I'm grateful for that, that this Roundup stresses that. Uh, I've noticed over the years that it seems like in our area, the cooperation between AA and al is not as close as it was when I first got sober. And uh, I hope that continues to, to have our fellowships to go hand in hand. And uh, uh, thanks to Marlene for inviting us. Thank you so much. I'm sorry Dick was sick and couldn't be here. But thanks for inviting Diane and I to come here. We've been here a couple times before, and it's always a pleasure to come. And thanks for everybody that's helps put this on and for the people that hosted us and talked to us at all the meals we've had. Um, I, just, I just love this fellowship. I love my people, and it's, it's always such a pleasure to be here. And uh, We've really been treated just terrific, and, and thank you so much for that. Um, I really enjoyed Tom and, and Jan's talks. I'm really looking forward to what Diane has to say tomorrow. She gets a rebuttal tomorrow. Uh, the, uh, you know, I always feel like I'm kind of at a disadvantage when I tell my story when Diane's here because, you know, in AA, we've got, as Bill sees it in our literature, but the Alanons have lowest remembers. And that's a, I don't think that's quite fair, but so a lot of what I have to do is hearsay, so I'm sure, <laughs> sure Diane will straighten that out tomorrow. And I know there's a lot of Alanons here, and, you know, in AA, we, we read the promises on pages 83 and 84 in the big book. And there's, there's promises all through the big book, not just only there, the ones we read in meetings. But, but there's, there's at least one in here for the outlines, too, on page 23. It says, once in a while, he may tell the truth. So <laughs> I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to do my best to do that tonight. So um, Before I get off on my on how bad things got and how, how it got turned around. I, I don't want to run out of run out of time and not mention 
the good life that we have today. Um, and sometimes I'm reluctant to do that because there's nothing worse than being in a meeting and, you, and, you're, and you're, you're not doing well and you, you don't know what hurts less, you know, hanging yourself or jumping off a building and there's some guy up there talking about his golden rewards, everything. You just want to, you know, be a sniper or something. But, uh, and I, I never want to sound like it's, it's bragging or boastful, just, but I'm just grateful for the life I have today. And uh, when I came to AA, our, our, our marriage was a mess. Uh, our finances were a mess. Um, our children were struggling because they grew up in an alcoholic home. Um, one of the first things my sponsor told me when he was, became my sponsor, he, he asked me one time, he said, what's the opposite of love? And I said, well, it's hate. And he said, no, the opposite of love is indifference. And I realized that I'd have been indifferent to a lot of people in my life. And I had two older sisters that I had just just moved away from and didn't have any contact with them, you know, maybe once or twice a year for some family get-together. And I realized how, how my alcoholism had taken me away from the people that I loved the most in my life and uh, how it had it drugged me down in a dark corner by myself. And it took a lot of uh, a lot of work through the steps to straighten out those relationships, but I'm, I'm, I'm glad to say that, that I have really good relationships with, with both our sons, uh, they're now 32 and 36. One of them lives in Nashville. One lives in Northern California. And these two older sisters that I had that took care of me when I was a little kid, uh, I have great relationships with both of them today as a result of, of AA. And I'm just so glad that uh, AA has allowed me to straighten out the mess that I was. And not only did I don't have to drink, but you know I've, I've got a chance to be the kind of husband and father and brother and grandfather that I always wanted to be. And speaking of being a grandfather, um, I got sober when I was 39, and I was an old 39 at that time. Uh, I thought my life was over, I didn't, and I wanted it to be over. And I was living one rotten, miserable day after another, one day at a time. And I, at that time, I, I thought about I'd be better off if I wasn't here. You know, and every now and then I'd say, well, I've got life insurance policies. If I just check out of here, you know, my family would be taken care of. That's how, that's, that's the, how, what a mess I was mentally. And of course, that's not what they wanted. They didn't want a paycheck. They, they wanted a father and a husband. And, but in that darkest time where I really didn't think I wanted to live and I had no hope of getting any better, it never dawned on me that down the road I would have this granddaughter that we now have. We have a granddaughter that's now 13 who is just the apple of our eye. And, uh, she's, uh, I'm so glad I didn't miss that. And I'm glad she didn't miss that either. Uh, I never had a grandfather, and now I get to be one. And it's all because of, because of AA. Uh, I grew up in a family that had a lot of drinking going on in it. And, and it was like, no big deal. That's just how it was. Uh, my parents went to work, and then they'd come home, and they drink. And when they have their friends over, they drink and party, and everybody'd have a great time. Except sometimes they drink a little too much, and they'd kind of overshoot the mark, you know. And bad things would happen. And I thought that's the way it was. And uh, when I got old enough to start drinking, I was, you know, a young teenager, and I went out with some older boys one night, and they had this bottle of gin that they were passing around, and they were taking sips out of it, and talking about how how nasty it tasted. And I took a sip out of it, and I thought it tasted nasty, but. Uh, somehow I, I got over that, and, 
and drank most of it and and I remember having having a really good time until I don't remember much. And I remember going home when they these guys took me home and I got sick. The bed started spinning around and around and of course I instinctively put my foot out on the floor thinking that was going to stop it. And I started throwing up everywhere. I I ran to the bathroom, threw up there, threw up all over the walls. You know, all all over everywhere in the bed, opened the window, out the window, everything. I didn't I didn't know I could throw up that much really. And the next morning I got up and I just felt horrible. And my mother thought that I had some kind of virus. She was telling everybody I had this virus. So I, so I thought I got away with it. You know, that's the first thing. Oh, yeah, I can get away with this too. And I told you know, a normal person wouldn't, probably wouldn't have done that anymore. You know, my wife's not an alcoholic. She, she, she might have a glass of wine sometime if we're out. She might not, which I don't understand anybody that if you have a choice that you, you either do or you don't. But, and, and, uh, and then she'll sit there and look at it and sip on it. And I, I'll catch myself staring at her like, you know, drink, what's wrong, what's wrong with you? And if she, if she has, has a glass of wine, I'll say, you want another one? She'll say, no, I don't want any more. I'm starting to feel it. And I just, I don't get that. You know, I don't get that. But she doesn't, I thought uh, everybody got the same out of drinking that I do, and they don't, apparently. Uh, when I drink, I want some more. I want some more because it gives me an instant change of personality the way I want things. It's what I got out of it from the get-go. And I thought everybody got that, but apparently they don't. That first time I got sick, I thought I just overshot the mark because, you know, I wanted to do it again and get it right. And I guess I spent the next 25 years trying to keep from overshooting the mark all the time. Uh, I, I kind of thought I was a, thought of myself as a seasoned social drinker. But really, social drinking for me is drinking all I could drink without slurring my words. You know, I wanted to get as low as I could get without without being a fool out of myself. And I, sometimes I got away with that, and sometimes I didn't. I was a poor student, uh, and I don't know whether that's because of my drinking or not. But but after I started drinking in high school, I, that my grades school became less of a, a priority. Uh, partying and having a good time was was what I wanted to do. I kind of fumbled my way through high school and got out of high school. My parents wanted to send me to college, so I went to college for four years in Memphis, and I, I basically, basically learned how to drink better and, and learned how to take a bunch of drugs. You know, I'm an alcoholic, though. I you know, Give me a glass of whiskey. That's what I really want to carry the message, but I'll take any kind of other kind of substance that will kind of light the afterburners or, or whatever you call it. So I, I did a lot of that, too. One thing I did do, my parents had started a business right when I was born, and I didn't get to see my dad much because he worked all the time. So I found that if I worked for the business every chance I got, I got to see more of him, and I got his respect. And that was probably the only self-esteem I can remember getting, uh, was the satisfaction of being a good worker. So I, I did that, plus it made me the money I needed to, to party like I wanted to. You know, I wasn't I wasn't the kind of closet drinker, quiet guy. I'm the I'm the music cranked up to eleven, uh, bare chested, barefoot in the summertime, uh, drive fast. You know, the lead drunk, as my sponsor says, and uh, my drinking was fun for a long time. I thought, you know, but over a period of time after I I got out of college. I went to work, had a good job in this family business and some great opportunities that I had, which I, which I took advantage of. And I met Diane along the way, 
uh, right before I got out of college. So I'm working hard and I'm playing hard and I'm, you know, I was making some money, so I was buying stuff. And if I, if you have enough stuff, I, then I thought that would make me feel okay. And sooner or later, though, you wind up with a bunch of broken toys and wore out toys. But, but I, I tried that. But inward, uh, my alcoholism was changing, changing me inside to where I just started rotting from the inside. Even though I was out there trying to work hard and play hard and and be successful and look successful inside, I really, I really thought, you know, I'm I'm just a fun, you know, and I started doing a lot of things that uh, uh, that went against the values I was taught, and I justified them uh, as my alcoholism increased. I I started doing some real, you know, my drinking went from being fun to being maintenance, and it was causing my personality to to just warp in all kinds of directions. I had a one thing I did, I was in the landscaping business. Actually, I was in the grass business, the, the legal kind. <laughs> and, and I'm in this landscaping business, and, and uh, Diane and I live in the same place that we've, we've always lived. It's way up on top of High Hill. It's a, one of the highest points in, in the whole county where, where Nashville is. And we live on a dead-end street. And most of our neighbors up there, don't have any landscaping at all in their houses. They just have their houses in the woods. It's just just wild. And and they have these really nice small, pretty small front yards, and then they have, everybody has a really nice view because it's it's way up high. And we move up there and but you know, I'm I'm decided I'm gonna have this nice landscaping and show off, you know, how good a guy I am at this landscaping thing. So I'm trying to grow grass in, in front of my house. And I tried it for a couple of years and you know, every year when the leaves would come out, it would shade the grass and kind of choke it out. And then the leaves would fall in the fall and choke the rest of it out and kill it. And I'd have to redo it. I just wouldn't have any luck at all having, you know, getting this yard that I wanted where I could show off how good I was there. And I, I, had, I got this great idea. I thought, well, I'll just cut all my trees down. And uh, if I do that, then I can have the, have the grass, this yard that I want. That would have been a pretty good idea. Except I didn't quite know where my property line was on this side of it. Now, I knew where the, the property boundaries were on the street because the power poles on the street marked the, the lots. But our lot goes way down this steep hill. I mean, it's straight up and down. I've only been down there, I don't know, two or three times since I've lived there over 30 years. But I'm decided I'm going to find where my property line is where I, I know to cut my trees down and not my neighbors. So I go stumbling down this hillside with them with a plat where I, where I bought my house, bought our house, and a compass. And I'm going to find where this where my property line is. And I find this iron pin in the ground, and I convinced myself that that was my property line. And then I called a surveyor up, and I said, hey, I, I want you to come out of here. I can't see from this hillside up to the street where the other marker is. I want you to stake a line in between these two markers. And this guy looks at me, he said, he told me a couple times, he said, you know, I don't think this is right. But you say, I'm an alcoholic. I've got this laser beam focus that I've turned on when I make up my mind, I'm going to do something. And I'm right. And I'm paying you. He said, you do it my way. And so this guy said, okay, I'll, you know, we'll do that. And I paid the guy, I forgot how much. Well, they start running this line up the through the woods with these stakes and flags. And by the time it got up to in between our house and my next door neighbor's house, the flags and stakes are almost touching his house. 
And a sane person would have thought, well, you know, maybe, maybe, uh, maybe I'm wrong here. Maybe these surveyors are right. But not me. I, the first thing that went through my mind was, how, you know, that old goat's been using my property all this time. You know, he built his house up here years ago, and he's been using my land. You know, I've since found out since I got sober that you can just call a surveyor up if you need to find a property line, and they'll come out and do it for you. You don't even know. You don't even have to tell them where you think it is. But I didn't know that. I think I know everything, you know. So all these flags and stakes are, are right next to his house. And I'm not going to wait till he comes back from Florida where he was with his wife to discuss this with him. I didn't have any communication skills with anybody at the time. It's like I'm, you know, straight ahead. You know, the tornado roaring through the lives of others. I'm going to get these trees down. So I, I call up. A tree surgery friend of mine, company friend of mine, who who came out there with two bucket trucks and a whole bunch of guys with chainsaws, and they cut all these trees down. And it was a lot of trees. It it really was a lot of trees, uh, <laughs> according to a jury of my peers. It was it was fifty thousand dollars worth of trees, because my my neighbor. My neighbor got home a few days later, and he was not happy with my surveying at all. And he shouldn't have been. And he and he sued me. He successfully sued me uh, for fifty thousand dollars. And he asked for a jury trial, which is unusual in a civil case like that. But he wanted a jury. He was so mad. And I remember sitting through a two-day jury trial, and I had on a three-piece suit because I dressed up because I wanted to go up there and act like I, you know, I knew what I was doing and had some kind of integrity about me, I suppose. And, you know, I'd sweat it all the way through this three-piece suit. You know, that old vodka smell sweat. And I'm eating these blue volumes I had to, during the recesses to act, try to act calm while his attorney clearly portrayed me as an absolute lunatic for cutting these trees down. And, and so they awarded in his favor. They gave him the $50,000, and they gave him $5,000 more punitive damages that he didn't even ask for. And so by this time, I hate this guy because I think it's not my fault. I'm thinking, you know, I, I make light of it, but, you know, there were so many things I did where I would turn things around on somebody else rather than take responsibility. I just didn't do it. I asked Diane one time when things got really bad and I was told I need to go to treatment, I asked her, uh, do you think if I go to treatment, I, this will help me with my father? Because my father and I were really having a hard time. Uh, worse, more than a hard time. And she said, well, I don't know, maybe so. And the only reason why I asked her that is because if it didn't work, I could blame her. You know, and I did that kind of stuff. And, you know, back back to the trees, uh, I, ne- I never took responsibility for that. I thought, well, golly, it could happen to anybody. I just made a mistake. I was trying to get the, get the property line. You know, and I destroyed this man's property uh, that he, he really liked. And I destroyed some other things, too, because when I did that, it never even occurred to me that, that uh, our sons were small then, and Diane would take our sons over there to visit these people during the day while I was at work. And after I cut the trees down and all this lawsuit and all that stuff, Diane didn't ever go over there again. Now, that was before she went to Alnon, and, and she has since said that she... If I'd done that today, she wouldn't have allowed that to interfere in that relationship. But, uh, but that ended that friendship there. Uh, 
so, so many of the things I did had consequences for other people that they shouldn't have had. So I hated this guy because he sued me. It was embarrassing. And so every day, I, when I drive, if I was driving down this dead-end street we live on, if I'd see him coming up the road in his car, I'd ease my car over in his lane like I was playing chicken with him. And I'd curse at him when he'd go get his mail. I mean, I was just terrible to this man for a long time. And they lived right beside us. And we were friends before, before I did all this. I even did, did something worse than, than cut the trees down. Well, I don't know it was worse, but it's just as bad. Several years before, when we were still friends, he came to me one time and he said, uh, my wife has always wanted a weeping cherry tree. She thinks that's the prettiest tree there is. Can you get us one of those? And I said, sure, I can do that. What else you want? And he said, well, I don't know of anything. I said, well, go ask her. So he came back a day or two later, and he said, well, there's a couple other shrubs of some kind he, he wanted. And so I think I'm this big shot landscape guy. So I send my people that I had at the time to go get this weeping cherry tree. And I asked him where he was going to plant it. He told me where he was going to plant the tree. So I get one of my crews to get the weeping cherry tree and these other bushes. And I send the crew up there to his house. And I, I had them plant the tree and these other shrubs for him. And he came over to my house, you know, and said, golly, I, I didn't mean for you to plant the tree. I was hoping you'd just get it for me. And I just wanted to give, you're my neighbor, I want to give you the business. He said, how much do I owe you for? And I remember sticking my chest out saying, oh, well, you don't owe me anything. You know, and it wasn't that I, I'm sure I did some things for fun and for free back then, but this wasn't one of them. It was like, I want to say, look at me, I don't need your money. I got these people and I can do this for you, you know, just because just I can't. And so I wouldn't let him pay me. Well, the day after that they awarded him the $55,000 in court for that, I went over there the very next night with some herbicide and put on that weeping cherry tree and that other stuff and killed him. I hear the groans. There are some Alanons here. <laughs> usually, usually, Alanons go, whoa. So uh, that's where alcoholism was taking me. I wasn't getting along with my father. I was. This is a man that, that gave me every opportunity in the world, uh, loved me the best way he could. Uh, he drank like I did, and we didn't get along. But uh, he, had, he had retired from this business, and, and, and I was running it. And then he came back four years later after he fulfilled the commitment and wanted back into business, and I wouldn't let him back in. So we had this war going on, and I just... Uh, I wasn't getting along with him. I wasn't getting along with my next door neighbor. Uh, alcoholism was taking me to the to the darkest places. I, I started cheating on my wife. I don't like to talk about that, but I but it's it's part of our story. I started cheating on my wife, and I was doing that. And I knew it was I knew it was wrong when I was doing it, but I was just doing it. You know, it's just, it's just part of the lifestyle. And that's the dark place I was going to, and I was. Uh, I was full of guilt and remorse and shame for doing that, and I was continuing to do it, and nothing was working. Just nothing was working. I'd gone to my doctor for years for depression and anxiety and migraine headaches, and he prescribed the best drugs he could give me to, for those type of ailments, and I'm taking all that stuff and washing it down with crown oil and trying to just charge ahead. And by the time I'm in, I'm in my mid-30s, I, I just, I just, I can't do it anymore. I got to the point where I, 
I got so mad at my father one time, I brought my shotgun to work, and I decided I was going to shoot his Buick when he drove up in the parking lot. I thought if I shot the windows and the tires out of his Buick, that that would give him the message that I didn't want him there, rather than having a discussion with him about, you know, how could we get along. I, I didn't know how to communicate with people. It's like just burn the bridge down or whatever it takes. And I brought the shotgun to work, but I didn't, I didn't do it. And I remember him coming in my office saying, hey, what's your shotgun doing here today? And I didn't say anything to him. But I was afraid of that man, too, and perhaps that's why I didn't do that that day. I don't know. My sponsor asked me that. Said, why, did, why didn't you do that? And I said, well, maybe it's because I was afraid of him. So uh, I go home, and I tell Diane that I was, I was going to shoot this Buick. And I asked her, what do you think I ought to do? And for the first time, she said, I don't know. I need to get some outside help. So I called my doctor one more time and I said, I said, look, I don't know whether you're going to put me in a nut house or what, but I'm, you know, I was going to shoot my father's car today and I'm, I'm just coming apart. I don't know what's wrong with me. Can you help me? And he said, well, go see this lady. And he set me up with this psychologist. And so I, and I quit drinking. By this time, I, I'd get too sick or get in trouble or dying to get on my back. I'd quit drinking for periods of time and I could stop for a couple of weeks. I even stopped eight and a half months one time. And during that time, I was marking on my calendar how many days I hadn't drank, and I was getting self-righteous about, golly, I don't drink anymore. And every time I'd stop drinking on my own, I'd feel better physically for a little bit. You know, you stop throwing up and having hangovers. Physically, I felt better. But little by little, it might be a few days, it might be a few months, but I'd get this, like a spring tightening up in me where I'd, it'd just make my skin crawl inside. You know, I couldn't, I couldn't, I guess what's wrong with me is, is I'm sober. You know, that's where alcoholism, that's my problem. I'm sober. I've never been able to live comfortably sober. And so I'd always drink again. You know, I didn't have any other, any other solution. But I had it in my mind that if, you know, drinking's caused me a problem, all I got to do is quit and then everything's fine. So after I go to my doctor, I, I quit drinking. I go see this, this psychologist lady. And I go in there, and I think I'm going to get to tell her what a rotten guy my father is. My wife's on my back, and i got these kids in private schools, and I'm trying to keep this lifestyle up, and things are going bad. And she said, well, before we get started, I want to ask you a few questions. I said, all right. She said, uh, uh, how much do you drink? And I said, I don't drink. She said, you don't drink at all? And I said, no, ma'am. She said, well, did you ever drink? I said, yes, she said, well, when did you quit? I said, Thursday. <laughs> and, and, this, and this was Monday. This was Monday. And then I found a calendar of mine a couple of years ago that I actually quit on Friday. But I thought if I added a day to it, I guess it'd sound better, you know. And I thought that'd be the end of the line of questioning. Because if you quit drinking, you know, there's no problem. Drinking's not a problem, right? And I, I, wish I, I wish I could remember the look she probably gave me. But she said, but then she said, do you take any drugs? And when she asked me that, it was like, that was my first surrender of any kind. It was like, I just can't go on anymore. I can't go on living this life. And I said, yeah, I take some drugs. And she said, what kind of drugs do you take? And I told her all the things I had prescriptions for. And then I told her all the other things I was doing on the side in addition to it. 
And she said, do you have any drugs with you now? And I said, yeah, I do. And she said, what do you have? And I reached in my pocket and I pulled out my change and I started going through my change and counting these pills that I had loose in my change. And I had 37 blue volumes in my change. And she thought that was a lot. <laughs> but I'd, I'd been, uh, I'd quit drinking on Friday and I was a little jumpy, so I bought a hundred of them. <laughs> so you drug people can do the math of how, how many I was taking. But. And she said, well, before we go any further, I want you to have an addiction evaluation done. And I thought, wait a minute, I ain't even told you about my father yet. I mean, I got real problems here. I didn't know how sick I was. And so she sent me to another guy. And I, this time, Diane goes with me. And uh, we fill out some forms there, and the guy gets us together and he said, you know, these questions, this isn't rocket science. It's, you know, pretty standard stuff. And he said, from what you've told me, you've been an alcoholic for at least 15 years, and if you don't get some help pretty soon, you're going to die. And the first thing went through my mind was, how could you say that in front of my wife? You know, I was more, more shocked by her hearing that than that my life was in danger. And that's... Looking back on that, I realized, you know, my ego will go to any length to, to kill me, to protect itself. I said, what, what do I need to do? He said, well, you need to go to treatment. You need to go to AA. And I said, well, I can't do that. I'm too busy. You know, I got, I'm, I'm in a seasonal business and things aren't going so well. And, you know, I, I got to go to work. And he said, well, if you don't get some help for your drinking problem, your drug problem pretty soon, so you don't have to worry about a business, you're going to be dead. And Diane hadn't been to Al-Anon yet, and I remember her saying, well, what can I do? And the guy said, pack his bags. And that made me mad, too. I didn't like that. Well, I told him, I said, look, I can't do that. I can't go away for 30 days. I just can't do it. He said, well, go see these people. They've got an outpatient program where you can work during the day and go at night for six weeks. And so I left there, and and I go see these people, and, uh, and this lady was telling me all about their program, and I said, look, that's great. I said, but you know, I'm too busy to do this, and I I know how to quit on my own. I've done that before, and I'll just quit again, and then I'll come back this fall when I've got time to do your classes or whatever you're talking about. And she looked at me like I was nuts and said, you know, just because you quit using doesn't mean you're going to quit hurting. And that's when that, I thought, what does that mean? And I didn't really have a good answer to that until... I was about a year sober, and my sponsor took me to Memphis one time to hear Clancy. He said, you got to hear this guy. And he took me down there to hear Clancy, and, and Clancy said two things that just, I mean, stuck me to the core. He said, the natural state of a sober alcoholic is growing depression and anxiety. And he said, the thing that makes alcoholism a fatal disease is that sobriety eventually becomes emotionally unbearable. And that's when I realized when I stop drinking, it gets worse. It never gets better, you know. And that's when I realized what my real problem was. So I go to, I'm signed up to go to this outpatient program, but in between on this weekend, I'm riding around, I'm seeing all these billboards for treatment centers all over Nashville. I mean, it seemed like there was one on every corner back then. At least I, that's what I was seeing that weekend. And I, and I start telling myself, you know, I'm not that bad. You know, they just know I got good insurance. They're trying to rip me off. Now, now I'm sitting there and I'm wanting to kill myself every day. I got a nine millimeter loaded Smith and Wesson pistol in my pocket. 
and usually one or two more in the wintertime, and I, and I can't stop drinking. I can't, I'm, I'm making all these terrible decisions, and I'm a dangerous person, and, and yet I went from, I can't do this another second to, well, you know, I'm not really that bad. And I just went back and forth like that for a while. And I started this, this treatment center, and they said I had to go to five AA meetings a week. And I said, you mean five meetings? And they said, no, we mean five a week. And I said, I can't do that. I'm too busy. But, you know, 24 years later here, I, I average pretty close to five meetings a week still. You know, I realized that I've got to participate in my own recovery. I've got to, I got to build my, my life around my sobriety. I don't just build my sobriety around my life when it's convenient. You know, I really got to do all this stuff. The longer I'm here, I realize uh, um, what a bad case of alcoholism I really have, even though my brain tells me sometimes it's not that bad. And the other thing is, is that as long as I've been here, there's not a whole lot of stuff I've really done. I've had the, the love and tolerance and help from an awful lot of people to, to, to have, allow me to be here today. And I'm grateful for the people around me that have helped me so much. But anyway, I, I, I go to this first AA meeting because I find out where one is close to me. And it turns out it's the full moon group, but it's still my home group. And I show up there, and I get there a little late, and I, and I pull in the parking lot, and all the parking lot's full, and there's people parking on the grass. And I'm going, great, you know, the church must be having something, or I'm at the wrong place. You know, this A&A thing's going to be a couple of old guys in trench coats shaking and puking on each other. I don't know what AA is, you know. And I start walking across the parking lot, and there's one guy that's late, like I am, walking across the parking lot. And he's this rock and roll singer that I would always go hear at the Bluebird Cafe every time he performed. The guy's just terrific. And I see him, and I, and I always just get hammered when I'd go see this guy. And I see him, and I'm thinking, what in the heck is he doing here? You know, he's a cool guy. You know, he must belong to the church or something. I don't know. And uh, so we, we all intersect in the parking lot, and he said, uh, can I help you? And I said, you're so-and-so. And he said, yeah, that's right. And I introduced myself to him and shook hands with him. I said, I really love your music. You know, I go, go hear you every time you, you know, I see you uh, playing around town. He said, thanks a lot. He said, can I help you? And I said, well, uh, I heard there was an AA meeting here. Uh, is, is there an AA meeting here? And he said, yeah, mate, you're in the right place. And this guy opened the front door for me. And it just floored me to find out a little bit later that he had four years of sobriety. Because I thought this guy had to be as hammered as I was to perform, which he had been in the years gone by and really ruined his career. Uh, but uh, he's the guy that, you know, God just given me all kinds of little things to sh- give me shoehorned into, into this. And, and I remember going in the, and by the way, there I was sitting there worried about saying, is there, oh, is there an AA meeting here? You know, and I parked my car in front of the front door of the Cockeyed Campbell Pub every day at 5 o'clock. You know, I didn't ever think to worry about anybody seeing me at a, at a bar, but, you know, didn't want anybody to see me at an AA meeting, for crying out loud. So I go in the, Frank opens the door for me, and I go in the in the in uh, in this meeting, and they seem to know I was new. And <laughs> I go in, I sit down, and they had a first step meeting for me, and everybody in the room started talking about their story. And there was one guy in there, uh, the people been coming here a long time, remember Joe Wall. And uh, Joe was there then, and a great big tall guy. And he said that he'd had two, he said he'd wrecked enough cars to fill up a junkyard, and that he'd had two DUIs in one day. 
twice. And I'm sitting there thinking, now I've never had a DUI. I'm not that bad. And the guy who's now my sponsor said that he used to sleep with a pint of vodka every night and he'd wake up in the middle of the night shaking and he'd reach under the pillow and pull out that pint of vodka and crack the top off of it and drink about half of it before he could stop shaking. He'd put the top on, put it back under his pillow and fall back out again. Sleep a couple more hours till the alarm went off. And when the alarm went off, he said he'd be shaking again and he'd finish that pint off to stop shaking where he could shave and brush his teeth and go to work because he went to work every day. And I'm thinking, I'm I'm, that's not me. You know, now I'm sitting there and I got that loaded Smith & pistol in my pocket and I'm wanting to kill myself, but I'm thinking I'm not as bad as these guys. Uh, but what they did for me, in spite of me in there not really knowing whether I belonged there or not, uh, other than the fact that there wasn't anywhere else to go, everybody in there gave me hope. And we talked about that at lunch today. I, if I don't do anything for a newcomer, other than make them welcome when they come in. Because things aren't good when somebody comes to AA. And uh, and I'm so thankful that everybody was kind to me when I came in because I hadn't, I hadn't had that kindness. that, I, that I, I probably had the kindness and I couldn't hear it, but I could hear it from them. I understood from the very beginning that I, that I needed to be there and I wanted to be there. And that's always been my home group since then. I get through this treatment center about a week out of it, and they said I had to get a sponsor before I got out of it. And there was this guy named Buff. And uh, Buff was, I, I thought he must be president of AA because he was he was always in the meetings and had good things to say. And, and he gave me his phone number the, the first night. And I thought, well, I'll just ask Buff. But, you know, when I'm sober, I'm real shy. I don't, I don't. I don't want to ask somebody a direct question. I'm afraid they're going to say no and afraid of rejection and all that. So I, I get over there next to him after the meeting one night, and I said, you know, Buff, I'm getting out of treatment next week, and i got to get a sponsor before I get out. That was my way of asking him. And he just looked at me, and he said, well, you ought to ask somebody, and just walked off. <laughs> and uh, so I waited till the next meeting, and I went up to him again, and I said, Buff, will you be my sponsor? And he said, yeah, I'll do that. He said, I'll... He said, I've loused up a lot of finance and romance in my life. But he said, if you'll take the 12 steps with me like I took them with my sponsor, your life will change whether you want it to or not. And that's the best news I think anybody's ever given. Because I've seen people take the steps and their life get better whether they want it to or not. It changes in ways that we don't uh, certainly can't see at the time. So I start, you know, when we read how it works, it says that some of these we balked. I balked at about all of them. You know, I, I want to do a step and just get a little bit better. And then, well, let's see. Oh, it, you know, and I did the first three pretty pretty quick. I mean, I, I wasn't sure I was powerless over alcohol at first because I thought I could quit. I wasn't as bad as these other guys. I only had to go to outpatient program. I didn't have to go inpatient. You know, I'm telling myself that I was, I was nipped this thing in the bud. So it took me a while for that to soak in. But, you know, it wasn't any problem with that our lives had become unmanageable. I mean, I want to assassinate a Buick for crying out loud, you know. And um, so I didn't have any problem with the first step. And um, my sponsor said, you know, how, how are you and God? And I didn't have, I didn't have a relationship with God. Um, I'd gone to church some when I was a kid, and then I, then I left. When I went to college, uh, I, when I got on my own, I just went on my own. 
I remember my parents used to visit me in Memphis and I'd drive around town and I'd go by this big Catholic church and I'd say, that's where I go to mass on Sunday. I've never been in that church in my life. But I, I wanted to please them, and even if it took lying to them. And, Diane and I, when Diane and I got married, uh, we were counseled by a priest who was a nice guy, and I went for a little while, but I just didn't get a connection there. And it's not the church's fault. Anybody has that, I'm, please don't think I'm saying anything uh, bad about that. But that just hadn't been my path. Uh, I just didn't know, I didn't know what to do about God. But I, I do know that I, about a 30 days in, when I started getting a migraine headache and I kept some painkillers that I, that I knew I was gonna take, have to take something for this migraine headache because it hurts bad, and I started crying my eyes out and I just yelled, God, please help me through the pain pills out the window of my truck. Of course, I, immediately I went, what have I done? But I did that, and, and you know that's the alcoholic prayer for me. God help me. I don't know where that came from. Uh, but my sponsor said, why don't you get on your knees in the morning and ask God to direct your day? I said, you don't have to do anything more than that. He said, at the end of the night, he said, why don't you get on your knees and say, thanks for keeping me clean and sober today. A couple days later, he said, well, how's that going? I said, well, I'm not, I haven't done that. He said, what do you mean? I said, I've tried that stuff. It doesn't work for me. And he said, what have you got to lose, Hoss? And I didn't have an answer for him. And so with him prevailing on me, got me getting on my knees in the morning and, and asking God to direct my day. And, you know, I do the third step prayer, say the third step prayer and the seventh step prayer in the serenity prayer in the morning and ask God to direct my day and I, I get up and go. And at night I get on my knees and thank God for keeping me clean and sober and faithful to Diane. Try to do an inventory of what I, uh, what I might have done better during the day. And I started doing that, and I don't know that's why I'm still standing up here sober, but that's part of, part of what I do. So I started building a, a little relationship with God that was, uh, uh, I didn't quite understand it. I felt okay doing it. And then all of a sudden, I thought I was getting better at it. And the next thing I know, I was adding more things in the morning to ask God to do that day. And I had this big, long look big long laundry list of things to ask God to do and I caught myself just busting out laughing one day I went hey God I'm conning you you know that's your job I don't need to tell you what to do today so I try to keep that simple and when I got to the third step about making a decision to turn my will and my life over the care of God um, when I read the third step prayer it had a bunch of these and thous in it and that reminded me of church and I've had a bad attitude about that at the time, so I retyped it in modern English, and that's the way I said it. And so I've taken the first three steps. I didn't balk at any of those, really. I took those pretty quickly. And I'm going to meetings, and I'm learning the lingo, saying all the stuff, cute things everybody says in meetings. There's a lot of those that will kill you, by the way. I used to, I heard somebody say one time, I thought it was real clever, oh, drinking's not an option for me today. And I thought that was cute, and so I, I said that for a while, but you know, that's not true. I think drinking's always an option for me. It's a really bad option, but anytime I say I'm done with it, the past today is, uh, is dangerous territory for me. Uh, but I was learning the other lingo, and I'm making a lot of friends. So I think I'm doing great. I was doing so well that, that I even came to my home group one night, and I told them that I thought the promises were coming true for me, even though I was on the third step. 
And I shouldn't sit in front of this old guy named Frank Donnelly was in there. Because he said, don't get too well too quick. And I said, what do you mean, Frank? He said, you're doing the alcoholic waltz. One, two, three, drunk. One, two, three, drunk. I thought, what do you know? You didn't even go to treatment. You know, you don't know all the stuff I did. You're not a modern alcoholic like me. But I had to look at the guy that he'd been sober a long time, and maybe there was something to it. But I continued on, even though my sponsor wanted me to get started on a four-step, and I drug my feet on that because I thought I was just doing wonderful. And things were a little better at home. They were better. Things were getting better. Uh, but there was still a lot of stuff underlying that I, had, that I hadn't dealt with. And I lasted ten and a half months on the first three steps. And I got so uncomfortable with untreated alcoholism that I felt so bad I started getting this depression and anxiety again just horribly. And I got to the point where I really was thinking about killing myself again. I was either going to get drunk or blow my brains out or start writing four-step, and I really didn't know which one to do. That's, that's how, how much pain I was in. It was a terrible crossroads. Uh, and at that point in time, I, right before I started writing that inventory, I got so uncomfortable one day, I called my sponsor, and I just had a complete meltdown of anything, any kind of self-worth that I had. Uh, I'd been in the same business all my life. And, and had some success at it. But, but I, at that point in time, I really thought that if people really knew how ignorant I was, they wouldn't even buy my product. I mean, I, I thought I was just a complete phony in the business I was in. Uh, and by the way, my, my business, when I first got sober, I thought my business had just turned around like a, you know, go great now that I wasn't drinking. Well, my business got worse for the first couple of years because I made a lot of bad decisions for a long time that carried over into my sobriety. And it took, I got frustrated about that at some point in time, but my sponsor said, you know, just do this thing one day at a time. And that business, you know, got better as it, as it did. And I retired from it some years ago, but, uh, but it didn't get better immediately. So that was dragging me down. And uh, I mean, everything, I just felt inadequate. I, as, as, a, as a husband and a lover to my wife, I thought, man, I may be the worst lover in the world. You know, so I, I everything about, any, uh, any, anything of, of, of any, any achievement I thought I could do, I thought it was just down the drain. I thought I was a complete failure. And it just terrified me. And I wanted to drink. I wanted to drink or run. I wanted to escape. And I called my sponsor. I said, man, I just had this meltdown that I just can't, I don't have any abilities at all. And he said, meet me over at this clubhouse. So I, I meet him over there and he said, you know, you, whatever God you have, you need to fire that one and get someone, get one you can lean on. He said, in order to do the rest of the steps, you're going to have to have a power greater than you to help you through this stuff, to give you the courage to do it. He said, if you're just, you're just praying to a God in the air there, he said, you need to find out what it really is. And for me, what I had to do was look at all the things I really use for a higher power. Now, I can profess that, yeah, I, I love God and I, I believe in God and, and say those prayers, but Money can be my God. You know, my marriage can be my God. My father was my God. My sponsor was my God. Everything, anything that sustains me and what I rely on, that's what my higher power really is. And what happened for me is little by little, one by one, all those worldly things failed me, including my sponsor. My sponsor got un unavailable for a while, and I, I couldn't get a hold of him for a while. And so what I had to do was, is find that relationship with God that I understood 
understand or don't understand that didn't relate to all those other things. There was times where my marriage was in jeopardy. There's times where the business was really bad. Uh, you know, but if my company was successful, man, I thought I was on top of the world. So all those higher powers I had had to just go away. And that's where, uh, through process of elimination, that's how I found the God of my understanding. I'm happy to report that that, that relationship's getting better all the time. So, uh, but all these things are happening, and I'm, I'm not doing this four-step, and I'm ready to just check out again at ten and a half months. And finally, I started writing, which was a great thing to do when I got to that crossroads. And I did a four-step straight out of the big book like my, like my sponsor told me to do. I made a list of resentments. I listed the people that I was mad at. You know, I wrote down what they'd done to me and how it affected me. You know, man, that's great. I get to write all these things down about, you know, I'm such a victim. I'm a people pleaser, and these people mistreat me. It's what I thought. But then I get over there in the fourth column. You know, he said, you know, what were your mistakes? What you should have done instead? And I've never looked at that. I've never looked at uh, being responsible for any of the stuff I've done. And I didn't like what I had in that fourth column, but you might as well just throw away the first three for me because the fourth column's the only thing I could do about resentments. You know, how I react to people um, and my actions is the only thing I can do to correct that. I made a fears list. I listed the people up. All the fears I had, and in the book says we ask ourselves why we had them. So I write all these reasons why I have each one of these fears. But that's just a drunk trap because the next sentence in the book says, "Wasn't it because self-reliance failed us?" And I looked down at all these reasons I'd written on these fears, and it was all because you know they were all self-centered fears. You know, I'm, I'm my own home group of higher power and sponsor rolled into one. So I did, and then I did a sex inventory. I tried to list every relationship that I'd ever had, whether it was a long-term relationship or a one-night stand, all of them, including Diane. Diane, I've been married 15 years at the time. All those relationships started the same way. I had the same things in mind. I treated women the same to get what I wanted. And uh, it was all a selfish and self-centered relationship, so that would self-destruct, and I'd go get another. And I thought at the time... I told my sponsor, I said, there's no way I can repair the damage in my marriage. He said, well, why don't you just keep working through the steps and let God take care of that and see how it turns out. And by this time, about this time, uh, I was so consumed with this guilt and remorse for cheating on my wife that I'd read enough of the book in there that it said we got rigorously honest and that we made amends and that we shared in a general way. So without talking to my sponsor, I decided I need to make amends to my wife. And I got her in a conversation one night. I see some people back there squirming. Uh, <laughs> I get her in a conversation one night and uh, told her in a general way that I'd been unfaithful to her and that I wasn't going to do that anymore and that I was trying to do the best I could, you know, to be a better husband. And I thought, I really thought she was going to say, well, gee, that's fine. You know, you're, you're an AA now. you got 30 days, you know, don't worry about it. And uh, that's not what happened. It uh, it made a bad situation a lot worse, and uh, uh, it devastated her, and it devastated uh, me when I realized after I, I talked to my sponsor, and I, I can't tell you what he said to me, because I try to, try to be nice up here, but he said, uh, I'll paraphrase it, that's why they number the steps for smart college boys like you. And, and he said, the other thing he said was, Hoss, you didn't make amends. All you did was dump your guilt. 
And when he told me that, I realized that that's what I'd done. And I didn't, I didn't mean to do that, but that's what I did. I was just trying to get rid of this feelings I had, and it was at her expense. So things weren't really good at home. And I did this inventory, and I'm thinking, well, it's worse now that I know the truth. Uh, but I went to my sponsor's house on a Saturday morning. He said, you're going to do your fifth step with me. So I go over to his house, and I have this inventory with me. He also said, I want you to write down every secret that you want to take to the grave. He said, you need to get, it says, between God and yourself and another human being, the exact nature of your wrongs and every, every dark cranny of the past has got to be uncovered. So I write down all these rotten things that I've, I've done that I didn't want anybody to know about. And some of them I even wrote down in code so if they found a piece of paper, they couldn't make sense out of it. And I go over to his house on a Saturday morning and he invites God in the room with us. And he said, what's the worst thing on your list? And I looked down at the code, and I told him something on that list that, that I, was, I was really ashamed of. And, and he told me the worst thing was on his fifth step list. Here, and that's when I realized, here's a guy that would risk telling me his worst secret to help me be more comfortable where I can empty this garbage can I had inside of secrets. So that put me at ease, and I told him a lot of other stuff on that list. And we went through these other lists that, that I'd worked with him about anyway in the fourth step. And I remember him getting toward the end. He said, well, have you left anything out? And I looked down at the list, at the code, and there were some other things on there that were similar to what I told him. And my mind just went to work right quick, saying, well, you told him this other stuff. It's the same kind of stuff. You don't need to tell him. So I didn't tell him everything. And he asked me a couple of times, you know, are you, or, is that it? And I looked at the code, and I said, yeah, that's it, bud. He said, okay, well, go someplace and be quiet for an hour and review the first five steps like the book says. So I get out, leave his condominium and I, I get about a block away and all of a sudden it, I feel like somebody just kicked me in the chest because I realized that I've lied to my sponsor and that I didn't do it right. And what really got my attention was is a, a good friend of mine uh, at the time couldn't stay sober. He kept coming to AA and he'd get in get a little time, and then it, he'd do a little step work, then he'd get drunk again. And he was doing that over and over again and had been for a long time before I got there. And when I was thinking about I left something out, it reminded me that he had come to our men's meeting the week before and said that he had to go pick up another white chip at a new meeting because he'd done a fist step and left something out of it. The book says if you leave something out, you'll get drunk. Invariably, we got drunk. And for the first time, I thought, you know, if that's happened to that guy and he's an alcoholic, if I really think I'm a real alcoholic, if I really believe that, I don't get to do this stuff cafeteria style. I, I got to do all this or I'm a dead man. And so I picked up my phone and I called Buff and I said, man, I, got, I left something out I got to tell you. And he starts laughing. And I'm sweating because I'm calling my sponsor telling him that I lied to him. Plus, I don't want to tell him this stuff. And I said, why are you laughing? And he said, well, usually it takes a couple of hours before they call back. You're easy. <laughs> so I tell him this stuff, and he said, I love you anyway. And I, you know, I hope I do God's will and some things in my life. Uh, but when I'm listening to another guy's fist step and I can participate in that, I got to do that last week, that I can participate in somebody's fist step, uh, I know how nervous they are and how... Uh, how it's such a big deal and it's such an emotional thing. I really feel like I'm doing God's work when I'm, I'm doing a fist step with another guy. It's a real privilege to be able to do that. Uh, 
uh, I always tell them I love you anyway. Uh, this is all about uh, forgiveness and redemption uh, and love. So I go back, uh, I go to my office for an hour and I, read, I get the book out and I read the first five steps and I thought I'd done a, as thorough job as I knew to do at the time. And so I look at step six and seven and I go, great, man, there's a paragraph on each one of them in the book and I'm thinking, Boom, boom, I get to do two steps. You know, I'm, I'm sure ready for God to remove his character defects. And you take it, God, I'm done, you know. So I think, okay, great, I'm done with this. And I, I read the paragraphs and said the seven-step prayer, but I didn't mean it. Because what I really did, after I wrote all that inventory, I thought, well, you know what you've done wrong in your life. You're just not going to do it anymore. I got the message. I got the news. I don't, I'm not going to do that anymore. And I rocked along for a couple more months and. And the next thing I know, I'm the, I'm the same arrogant, sarcastic, uh, explosive, depressive person that I've always been. And I knew why. And it drove me nuts. And we were on Christmas vacation down in the Florida Keys at Diane's parents' house. And her father had me out on his boat. And I've been living at his house, eating his food for a week. And uh, he had me out. We're out there fishing. And I get mad at him something about his boat. And, cuss him out on his own boat, and I get back to the dock, and I yell at both our sons, and of course, they're young. I mean, boys are rambunctious at Christmas time, and I just felt horrible, you know? I just was sick and tired of being me, and I remember calling Buff up, and I said, I said, man, I'm down here in the Keys, and I'm just, I'm just making a mess of things, and you know, it's about 20 degrees in Nashville. Down there where I was, it was windshield about 85, and he didn't want to hear that, but he just starts laughing when I'm telling him what a mess I've made of things. He said, congratulations, Hoss. You've been trying to remove your own character defects. He said, why don't you get in a quiet place and get on your knees and say the seventh-step prayer like you mean it, and then let's get busy on these amends. And so I got teachable once again. You know, Every step, it's like I want to know what it's going to do for me before I take the action. And sometimes I get caught up like the steps are punishment. And the steps aren't punishment. Man, it's a, it's a way to freedom. It's a... It's the key out of the hell I lived in all my life. But at the time, I think it's, what does this have to do with my real problem? Uh, but after I take the step, I look back and I go, man, why didn't I do that months ago? So that's kind of how it was all the way through. But by this time, man, I'm, I'm ready, to, ready to do the deal. Plus, the guy who's now my sponsor was a couple of steps ahead of me. Buff sponsored my, my current sponsor, Terry. And I watched Terry. I watched the promises come true in Terry's life as he was making amends. And I, and I thought, man, I want what he's doing. I want what, I want to get what he's what he's got. And so, since I loused up that amend to Diane, thinking I was making amends to her, and all I did was dump my guilt and make it worse, uh, I just wrote down the list of all the people I'd harmed and the harm I'd caused them, and I just handed it to Buff and I said, man, you've done this before. Please help me. And that's that's. You know, having a sponsor, uh, I mean, that's an easier, softer way to me. Having an English-to-English -English interpreter, a guy that knows, he know, he knew everything about me. I've had two sponsors, and both of them know everything about me, good and bad, and that's priceless to me because every time I have a problem, they know how to diffuse the problem or, make a, or, or give me some positive guidance because they don't have the emotional attachment to it that I have. Uh, and they love me enough to... You know, they don't care about hurting my feelings to, to get the point across of what I need to do to straighten, straighten it out. And I, I never had that guidance in my life. And it's, it's, it's just one of those things that I, I wouldn't give anything for. And uh, so 
he he told me what to do on these amends, and he told me he said, you know, when you go make amends, people said you don't uh, you don't go to them and just say I'm sorry. He said they know what a sorry son of a gun you are. He said you need to go try to you can apologize to them, but you need to make make some kind of uh, repair of the damage you've done. And he said, you know, it's easy. He said on your on your uh, neighbor. He said you just need to go to him and plant him another weeping cherry tree. He said, now you don't need to go tell him you know how it died. You know, he doesn't need to know that information. You know, the point is, is you try to repair the damage. And if you can't, you stay willing if you're going to cause further harm. So, uh, I don't know about anybody else, but when I get instructions how to do those things, those people just seem to pop up in my life. And a couple days later, I pull in my driveway, and there is my next-door neighbor out there on his riding lawnmower. And I just realized not too long ago that before I cut his trees down, he didn't even own a lawnmower. But he had a lawnmower now that he had a yard too. And uh, I pull in the driveway and I see him out there on his riding lawnmower and my heart starts pounding. I'm thinking, I said, God, I don't know what I'm supposed to do here exactly, but please give me the right words and the courage to do what I need to do here. And I got out of my truck and I walked around the six-foot wood fence that I put up between us to try to screen him out after he sued me. And I walk over, and he, he sees me walking over there to him. And he, I, could, I remember the look in his eye. I mean, he was really afraid of me. And, um, I mean, he had this look like, can I get this lawnmower in a high enough gear to outrun this guy, or should I, you know, abandon ship and run, you know? But he didn't. He stopped, and he turned the mower off. And I walked over to him, and I said, Mr. Logan, can I talk to you a minute? And he said, sure, what is it? I said, I've done a, I did a terrible thing cutting your trees down years ago, and I've uh, disrespected you and your wife for a long time, and uh, I wish I hadn't done any of that stuff. And I don't know, I'm, I'm trying to change some things in my life, and I don't know what I can ever do to make up for the damage I've caused you, but whatever it is, I'm willing to do it. I didn't mean to say that. I didn't mean to tell this guy that I'd do anything. But I asked God to direct what I said, and that's what came out of my lips. And I really thought the guy would say, just get off my property and don't you ever come near me again. Because that's the way I used to deal with people that got in my way, get leave me alone. And sometimes people want us to do that. And I would have honored that if he had said that. You know, sometimes that's the best amends you can do is people want you to leave them alone. And he had every right to do that. But instead, he came up to me and he put his arms around me and he started hugging me and he started crying. I didn't, I didn't know what to do. I really didn't know. I, I didn't expect that at all, you know. And he held me for a while, sobbing. And he pulled back away from me, and he looked me right in the eye, and he said, what's in the past is over. He just forgave me like that. And the first thing that went through my mind was, okay, he's forgiven you, run. Run. I want to run away. And I would have run away if that had been up to me. But this was a real turning point in my life. I had clear instructions from a sponsor of what to do. And if I hadn't had clear instructions from a sponsor that I trusted with my life, I would have run away and missed what I'm going to tell you now. And I, I'm thinking, run. And, my, and I, this, this little voice said, no, you stay. You've got stuff to do here. And I said, I really appreciate you forgiving me. But I really want to do something to make up for the damage I've caused you. And he said, what hurt us the most all these years is that 
my wife and I had lost our neighbor, and we've been praying all these years that we get our neighbor back, and now our prayers have been answered. And that's when I realized all those years when I pulled in my driveway every day cussing him, he'd been praying for me. My sponsor told me that anytime I think that my higher power is not big enough, I'll just borrow Mr. Logan's for a while. And uh, I said, well, I really appreciate you, you forgiving me, but I really want to do something to make up for it. And he said, well, you already have by coming over here. And I said, well, I noticed your cherry tree died over there. Could I, <laughs> could I plant you another tree? And he said, oh, you don't have to do that. And I said, well, I'd really like to do that if you'll let me. And he said, well, Ms. Logan would like that. Well, I didn't have my people anymore at this time. My business was, had gone from all my people and a bunch of trucks with my name on the side to, down to one truck and a few of us. And, uh, but my son, uh, my older son, who was 12 at the time, went with me and we got a bigger weeping cherry tree and we, we went up there and planted it in his yard. And he wrote me a letter that I carry in my big book that I'd like to share with you. This is dated June the 26th, 1991. Dear Mike, it was with much surprise that we found the beautiful cherry tree in our yard when we returned home yesterday. We had not expected it so soon. We appreciate it so very much, and we will care for it and will cherish it always, not only for its own sake, for it is a beautiful tree, but because it symbolizes a deep and lasting friendship between us and you and your family. We pray that God will bless you and your family in all that you do, and we pray for ourselves, for we are a sinful people by nature. There are none of us without fault, and we need his constant love and forgiveness. Again, we thank you for the tree. We're all the more grateful because you did not have to do it. Your friendship means more to us than you know. Most sincerely, George Logan. When my father died about a year later, the very first flowers that came to the funeral home was a wreath of purple orchids from Mr. Logan. And I've still got one of them on my desk at home. Uh, he gave us a country ham for Christmas every year until he died after that. When he died several years later, I was... I was able to go to his funeral. I remember going to the visitation because y'all have taught me to show up for weddings and funerals and graduations and all those things that I used to be too busy for. And I remember going through the visitation line and I'm shaking hands with all these people and I shake hands with this one man that I don't know. And he said, oh, you're Mr. Allison. Dad told us about you. And I'm going, oh, great. <laughs> he said that you'd had a disagreement but that you'd made it right. And you see, I didn't make it right. I would have gone with the grave hating that guy. But because I was desperate enough to do the steps, I was able to straighten that out, you know, that I paid attention to a sponsor. And, uh, you know, that's when I started knowing a new freedom and a new happiness. Uh, I made amends to my dad before he died. Uh, I didn't, uh, I made formal amends to him, and then I didn't get along with him again. And, and I, I was really having a tough time with that. And I called my sponsor. I said, I'm, I'm hating this guy again, you know. I, we're getting into it. And he said, well, maybe you need to do some more inventory work. And what I did is I started realizing that uh, uh, he was a man that had some wealth and some influence. And all my life I hid behind that. I didn't ever want to make him mad because I wanted what he had. I wanted that. It was my greed. And... Uh, my sponsor said, that's easy. He said, you just need to go home and pray every night for three weeks. And when he dies, he leaves everything to your sisters. <laughs> I thought he was insane, but I, you know, I did, and I got free of that. And I had a, a pretty good relationship with my dad. I used to say it wasn't good, and really we just ran out of time. 
he died when I was a couple years sober, and we did, we ran out of time. I wish we'd had more time together in sobriety. Uh, he never got sober, but but I did. I tried making amends to Diane a second time according to what my sponsor uh, suggested, and that was his best thinking, which was better than my thinking, but it still wasn't good enough for her. And she rejected that amends, but she didn't leave me. And we rocked along, and I thought, well, time will take care of that. You know, I'm trying to show that I'm doing the best I can. And uh, at about five and a half years in sobriety, one of our sons got into a little bit of a problem, and we went to a counselor, and my sponsor said, you're going to find out this is not about your son, it's about you and Diane. And sure enough, in a few minutes, all that was brought up from the past. And through that uh, counselor, I got some information of what it was going to take to make amends to her that were satisfactory, and I didn't think it would work. Uh, but my sponsor said, well, do you think you could stay sober if she left you? And I said, yeah, but I don't want that. And he said, well, she needs closure. And so I made that amends to her, even though I didn't think it'd work, and it, and it did, and that was 18 years ago. And we have a relationship today built on honesty and trust that I wouldn't trade with anybody, and I work like the devil to keep that slate. And I'm so grateful this woman stayed long enough uh, that we both had enough recovery that that, that could get worked out. And I know the scars are still there, or probably always be there. Um, but all I can do is the best I can do one day at a time. And uh, the program of AA has allowed me to do that. Uh, when my sponsor was, uh, when I was 10 and a half years sober, my sponsor contracted a, a uh, terminal disease. And about a year later, he passed away. It was a slow process. And people were asking me, what are you, who are you going to get for a sponsor when Buck dies? I just put him off and said, you know, as long as Buff's alive, he's my sponsor. Well, he passed away. A couple of days later, a couple of guys came to me and said, well, who are you going to get for a sponsor? And I put them off too. I said, well, I don't know right now. But then I had this conversation in my head, and it went like this. You know, you're 10 and a half years sober. You know, you, you, uh, you got, your, uh, got your business back going. Your wife's doing better. You know, your relationship's good. Your kid's doing well. You know what Buff would tell you to do anyway. You don't really need to get another sponsor. And I thought, well, that's nuts. And so uh, I picked up the phone and I called Terry, who was the guy I was telling you about that I rode his coattails. And Buff sponsored him too. He came in about six months before I did. And I said, Terry, I just had this conversation. I don't need to get another sponsor. And that's crazy. Will you be my sponsor? And he said, yeah, but I'm not Buff. And you see, I got this contempt prior to investigation. I think I know what, I, what I'm supposed to have all the time. I think I know everything. And I thought I need another guy like Buff Froge. And there's nobody that would be like Buff again. But Terry's now been my sponsor for over 14 years. He's been my sponsor longer than Buff was, the guy that spent hours and hours and hours and hours and hours taking me through the steps. But I've learned more about living one day at a time from Terry and about how to be a father and a husband and a grandfather than anybody I could have possibly had. He's been the perfect guy in my life. Uh, so I don't know. And, and the other thing is, is I thought I was doing that for me by asking him, but when I called him, he realized he was having the same conversation in his head that he wasn't going to get another sponsor, so it made him pick up the phone and call another guy and say, I wasn't going to get another sponsor, but Allison said he needs one, so I guess I do too. Will you be mine? So the action I, I took there encouraged him to get another sponsor. And uh, so, you know, I never know how things are going to turn out. Our youngest son, I'm... I don't know, have six, seven years sober, and all of a sudden I get a call one day from from my uh, from his eighth grade middle school and said, "Come get your son. We found him with some marijuana, and we've got zero tolerance. Come get him. He's out for a year." 
And I'm thinking, this can't happen to me. You know, I'm Mr. AA. You know, I, I'm going to AA. She's an Al Nine. They're an Al Team. We're an Al Dog, an Al Kid, an Al Dog, Cat, and everything else you can think. And I'm, we're the recovery family. And here they say my son's kicked out for weed. And I was so angry. And we couldn't get him in a, another pri- a private school because they don't want a kid that's been kicked out for drugs out of a public school in a private school in the middle of the year. Well, finally gets in this alternative learning center. And I had to go all the way across Nashville every day and pick him up at 2 o'clock between 5 till 2 and 2 o'clock. And I'm thinking, is that my reward, you know, for staying sober and doing all these things that I got to go leave my job, go all the way across Nashville, get my kid and either bring him home or bring him out to my side farm. And I'm thinking, what's this, what's this all about? What I, what I didn't know is it forced me to spend time with my son that I wouldn't spend with him because I worked all the time. And I, had a, I have a bond, he's 32 years old now, and I have a bond with him that is just priceless. And it's because I had to pick him up and have that riding time with him every day. You know, so I never know how things are, are going to turn out. I know one thing, our granddaughter is in the same middle school in the eighth grade now, and I picked her up the other day without incident. <laughs> uh, so that's one good thing that's going on. Uh, I'm so grateful to have the opportunity to be here with my people tonight. I love you all. I love AA. And I love Al-Anon too. I'm looking forward to hearing Diane in the morning, and I really appreciate you. Uh, listening to me tonight. Love you all. Thank you.